That, uh, that Christmas carol is from the West Indies, and I'm not sure if you're like me, you want to sing it with a West Indian accent. I can't help it every time. What brings you joy? We talked to the kids about it before. What brings you joy? I know if I asked my mum, who's down in Victoria and just come out of lockdown, what brings you joy, she would absolutely say that one of those things is seeing her grandkids, not through a screen, but giving them a hug. I know if you asked those grandkids, if you asked Hamish what brings him joy, he would say Pokemon, wouldn't you, Ham? He's looking at his Pokemon cards as I say it. As Zari said, if you asked Zari, I asked her yesterday, I said, what brings you joy? She says, being creative. Proud parent moment right there. If I asked Lyndall, which I haven't, but it would be interesting for you to ask her afterwards what the answer to this question would be, what brings you joy? I reckon up in the top, top 10, top 5, top 3, more sleep. Would that be right? More sleep. What brings you joy? What brings you a deep sense of joy? As we said with the kids, joy is when nothing comes between you and Jesus. It's helpful for them, but it's helpful for us too. It's true. Real joy isn't dependent on circumstance. It cannot be. Instead, it's dependent on our belonging. What or who do we belong to? Who we belong to determines how much joy we have. Joy is being free of everything that stops us belonging to God. People don't naturally associate joy with religion, do they? They almost seem like they're opposites. In part of our spirit, we hear about that. We go, they're they're opposites. People do naturally associate religion with trying to be something we're not. Trying to be holy or pure or righteous or good or kind or more loving. But God actually saves us from those things. As I said to Zara, there's no need for any of us to try and be those things. Jesus becomes those things for us, so we don't need to. We are free. God's love is so immense that he actually says to us, I just want you. Just you. Don't pretend. Don't put on a mask. Don't try and be something you're not. I just want you. With all the baggage, all the rubbish, all the sin, all the mess, all of it. I just want you. That's why I died. I'm going to make you perfect. Nothing you can do will make you perfect. I'm going to make you joyful. When you give in to believing this about God, that maybe God is right about this, there is an overwhelming sense of joy that you have nothing more to prove to God. You're forgiven, you're saved, you're free. What joy there is in that. Much joy that follows. You no longer have to be anything other than who you were made to be. Today we're looking at this tension in the life of Joseph. Joseph was Jesus' earthly father. And as you heard Jenny read before, I'm just going to read a portion of it. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she found that she was pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. We have to understand a few things to to get the gravity of what was happening in this situation. Joseph is what is called, what the Bible calls, a righteous man. Did you hear that? Joseph was a righteous 
man. He is good with God. He is good with God. The Hebrew word for a righteous man was the word sadiq. It's a fun word to say. Okay, try it. Sadiq. Sadiq. Thanks, Sandra. You're with me. I appreciate that. All right, on the count of three, let's all give it a go. Sadiq. Ready? One, two, three. Sadiq. Nice. Feels good, doesn't it? Feels good. Sadiq was, was a thing. Just like a rabbi or a priest or a Pharisee. Sounds like a bad joke's coming. It's not. A Sadiq is, is a position you held in society, what we might say like a JP. Their role was a little bit different to a JP, but we would say JP. A JP does a lot of other things, but a function of their role was a, 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 a legal specifics around being a JP. So a Sadiq was somebody who had uncompromising obedience to the law. The law was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. A Sadiq would have held them as sacred never to be violated, never to be strayed from, to be fulfilled on all circumstances. So Joseph would never have eaten unclean food. He would never have mixed with the wrong kinds of people, especially someone who was pregnant out of wedlock. He, he didn't keep his carpentry shop open on the Sabbath to earn a few drachmas. He would never have a ham sandwich down at a picnic. He never had a drink. He never got drunk. He was a Sadiq. This is what Sadiqs did. He was as religious as it comes. And his reputation in the town of Nazareth would have solely been dependent on how obedient he was to the law. If he was no longer obedient to the law, everyone would know in a flash. And that would be it for Joseph's reputation. See, their society revolved around your public reput reputation. Very clearly, very starkly. Ours does too. I don't know if you know it does, but it does. But more subtly than it did in Joseph's time. You see, Nazareth, Nazareth was a small town. And word spreads very, very quickly in a small town. So if he steps out of line, one wrong move, he kind of tumbles down the society's ladder, if not plummeting to the bottom, because he stood at the top. He was the echelon, the one everybody looked to, this Sadiq. In Joseph. So as this story unfolds for Joseph, he has a tiny bit of a problem. Thanks, God, for dumping me in this. He's a Sadiq. He never even associated with issues like this. His fiance is pregnant. Not his wife, his fiance. And he's a Sadiq. His whole reputation revolves around one thing. He is known as an upstanding and trustworthy citizen because of his commitment to the law and what the law says to do. It's how he lived his entire life. And it's likely how he offered counsel to so many others. In the town that he was with, there would have been people that would have come to him for advice for the same situation he's right in now. And the Torah, the law has some very, very clear things to say about what he should do. And none of them are good. Deuteronomy 22, for example, says that if a woman is pledged to be married and is unfaithful to her fiancé, which could, uh, you could assume that that was the case that, that he was in. This is what should happen in verse 21. She shall be brought to the door of her father's house and there the men of the town shall stone her to death. She has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. You must purge this evil from among you. Now, 
it's not the only option. There's another option. In Numbers 5, a very strange passage. If you're going to have some quiet time with God today, don't head to Numbers 5, verse 21. Still stay well, well away. And this is why. If a husband suspects his wife of unfaithfulness and she denies it, he can take her to the priests in the uh, temple and they will give her what's called a water of bitterness. And in verse 27, it says, if she has defiled herself and been unfaithful to her husband, her abdomen will swell, her thigh waste away, and she will become accursed among her people. Oh, it's horrible, isn't it? Just horrific. So the Torah, the law, the standard is very clear. And upholding this standard is what Joseph is all about. And if he fails to do it, people will never look at him the same. His reputation will be completely destroyed. For him to maintain his reputation, he has to do what the law says. Everything rests on his next move. Everything rests. Now what happens if Joseph finds his joy in his reputation? What if he looks at how he is in this town and says, I'm, I'm it in a bit, like, look how good I am, look how holy I am, look how righteous people really revere me and they look up to me and they come to me. This is the whole soul, part of my being. What, what disaster awaits Joseph? If he is just so connected to what people think of him. Well, for a start, Mary is doomed. And if Mary's doomed, Jesus is doomed. And if Jesus is doomed, the fate of the world is up for grabs. The fate of the world is not too sure. And we look at that and we go, well, that's Joseph's life. I really feel for him. But there's so many parallels. We're actually in not too different a position. If we find our hope and our joy in what other people think of us, we are doomed. The things God wants for us are doomed because we will never lean into those spaces. We will always lean towards what other people think of us. And this morning, something quite interesting happened. I'm polishing up this message. I'm sitting in it and, it, and then it dawned on me that yesterday was my 19th year since I was ordained. So yesterday was my 19th anniversary since I was ordained. And I don't usually post personally on Facebook. I use Facebook for a variety of things, but I don't usually, but I thought that deserves a bit of a mention. And so I started this morning crafting, very short, but this thing to say, look, it's been 19 years and, and thank you. And so, so as I'm writing it, uh, what you need to know is the audience that follows me on, on Facebook is most of them are not Christians. So most of the people that are in my social media network, and there's a lot of them, aren't Christians. They don't go to church. And so everything I post, I'm thinking in the back of my head, how do I contextualize what happens in my world and church world to, to open a door for them to engage? And so I write the words... Um, uh, I just want to say thanks to God. I write those words. And then it says, and thanks to everybody else who's been part of the journey. If you're really keen to see what I said, just head to Facebook after, after I finish speaking afterwards. And so I write these words. And then I look at these words and I, I went, Ralph, you saying God is really safe. 
For me, in my world, as a pastor, I am expected to be about God. And so if I ever post about God, people go, of course. And then I went, why did I not say Jesus? And I realized, because what if people were offended by that or agitated by that or upset about that? What if that cast me in a different, different mode? And then I realized, oh, I have this horrible sermon to preach to us all this morning, of which I too struggle as much as all of us in this space of what do people think? And it holds a tremendous power, doesn't it? We, we wish it didn't, but it really does. And so I changed it to Jesus and I flicked it out there into the world and we'll see what happens. But whether it's a Facebook post or whether it's the way we dress or the way we do our hair or the language that we use or the places that we shop in or the public decisions that we make, or as a parent, how well-behaved your kids are. Like, oh, what will people think? Eh, does, it, does it matter? The risks we don't take, the steps of faith that we falter on, the instructions of God that we disobey, or we pretend we didn't hear, they're all connected to what will others think of me? And we hate that about ourselves. We wish we didn't, but, but people who go, no, that's not me, they actually respond the other way because so powerful is what people think of them that they do things to upset, but it's still the same. Still living in reference to what everybody else thinks of us. And there's no joy in it, is there? It's just miserable. We feel like we never fit in. Do we ever, like, ever achieve what we want to achieve? How do I be in this thing? How do I behave? What will other people think? And it becomes more and more of a burden and there is no joy in it. Real joy is not dependent on circumstance, it's dependent on belonging. Do we belong to everybody else or do we belong to God? Because if we come to a point of finding peace and rest and security and I belong to God, then it matters far more what God thinks of us than what anyone else thinks of us. You see, when your reputation holds a greater weight than your personal holiness, there's a problem. When, when you look to, to others about what they will say or how they will think, instead of looking to God and what God will say and think of us, we cannot find joy. We can never find a sense of joy in that because you were made to belong to God. Every single person was made to belong to God, not our culture. Our culture is a ruthless master that will never satisfy your needs. You were made in God's image, out of God's love, not to replicate a false picture of what's acceptable, but to be God's and to belong to God's. And in that space, there is true joy. Who you belong to determines how much joy you have. And when you belong to anything other than God, you'll never know who you truly are and you'll never know a sustained sense of joy. I was speaking with a friend of mine the other day, her name's Sue, and Sue was telling me about her auntie who'd just passed away. And they had a funeral for her auntie, and at her auntie's funeral she, she had lived many years, and they could only say one thing about her. Every single story and eulogy and testimony and, and thing that was mentioned only said one thing. She was filled with such incredible joy. They realized halfway through, they're like... <laughs> Everybody that's in her world has experienced this side of this lady. 
And what was fascinating is this lady has devoted herself to the church. For years and years, she's given and given and given and served and helped out as much as she could. And then as her body began to fail her, um, she gave less and gave less, but, but started to pray more. And then it came to the point where she couldn't get to worship on a Sunday morning. And so she would sit home and for that hour she would pray for the service. And then they moved her into a nursing home so she was disassociated with friends and her life and church. And as she was there, her, her voice starts to fail, her ability to speak, her ability to hear, her ability to see. And as all those things start to fade, but she's still cognitively alert, she says to my friend, she goes, well, they can, they can take everything away from me, but I still get to pray. I'm still going to pray for you and for the church and people in need. Because although everything else, all the circumstances have taken everything away from me, I still have Jesus. Whew. Wow. I want to be like that. That is a joy-sustained life. No wonder the only thing they could say of her was she just exuded joy all the time. What a testimony that speaks to us. Especially when we think, I can't do what I used to be able to do. I know there are a number of you who shared that out of grief and pain. I wish I could do more, but I just, I just can't. We have friends that are no longer able to be here on a Sunday morning. We have friends that have moved to nursing homes and moved to other places. And we can, we can focus on the circumstance and we can be broken by that and hurt by that. Or we can look to Jesus. What do we still have to offer Jesus? All of you have so much still to offer Jesus. Until your last breath, he wants you. You belong to him. He wants to know your prayers and your thoughts, the, the, the cry of your heart. So Joseph is this, this righteous man and he has the same choice as we each have to do. We each have to choose to be joyful. Choose to look to Christ instead of the circumstance. Choose to pray instead of to get frustrated. Choose to lean in like my friend's auntie did. And so Joseph has a choice. Does he out Mary for her public disgrace? Does he distance himself from her utterly and completely? Which is what would be expected of a Sadiq. Everyone in his world would have thought, that's what you have to do, Joseph. To be completely clear of this, to have no attachment to it, you need to, you need to put her under the, the full weight of the law, which is impending death. Or does he do something else? Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Marriage, when you, were, um, when you became engaged to someone, that was a legal contract. That's why marriage, that's why divorce is required in that. In this day and age, you can break off an engagement. But back then, it was a legal binding contract because it was an arranged marriage. And so Joseph chooses compassion over legalism. He chooses to love Mary and love God over loving his reputation and loving the law. He had in mind to divorce her quietly so as not to expose her to public disgrace. And by doing that, he doesn't defy the law. He doesn't break the law. He chooses a different way to display his righteousness. Now, because divorce was necessary, Joseph now becomes somebody who chose divorce, a righteous man who chose divorce. 
Do you think that's good for a Sadiq? That's not good at all. What he was actually doing is saying, instead of sacrificing Mary, I'm sacrificing my reputation. Instead of distancing myself from this mess, I'm going to lean into God and obey God. And whatever happens with whatever people think of me, they can take that up with God. I'm not carrying it around. The only way to preserve Mary's life was for him to divorce her. So he chooses to do so. And when you offer up your, your reputation as a sacrifice, there is much joy that comes with that. Because you look for that sense of being and wholeness and fulfillment that God brings into your life, that the circumstances simply cannot offer you. Because you're choosing who you want to belong to. You want to belong to God, not going to belong to everybody else's opinion. So I thought there might be some questions. I want to throw them your way. They're rhetorical questions for me to say, but not rhetorical for you to answer. But I wonder if these will help you in, in sifting through this, because the hardest thing is seeing what our heart is, truly is. So is it more important what your friends think about you than what God thinks about you? Do you make decisions out of, pub, out of private prayer or public opinion? What would others say is more important to you? The acceptance of people or the pleasing of God? When under pressure, do you ask, what does Jesus want me to do? Or what do others expect of me? Answering these questions honestly is actually half the struggle. Because we often, don't we, want to appear holier. We want to answer the questions in a really God-like way because God's listening and nobody else is. And we want our reputation with God to be good. It's still reputation. When we do anything other than coming before God and saying, God, I am broken and decrepit and miserable and nothing to smile on and I'm here, it's when we know joy because God does smile on us. That's exactly how God wants us to come to him. Open and honest and vulnerable and in need. These things I cannot shift, God. You can. And I'm here. How hard is it to live outside the expectations of others? All of us, we know it. It's so difficult to deny our reputations. Which is why we need to look to what Jesus did. Jesus never valued ever what other people thought of him. Ever. It was staggering. He never cared. It simply wasn't important to him. To him, the only opinion that mattered was God the Father's, which enabled to him to embrace the worst possible circumstances ever. He was unfairly, unjustly strung on a cross, completely naked, a cross that belonged to the Romans. That was a symbol of hatred. And if you hung on a cross, it said to the entire world, you are disrespectful, you are insolent, you are hated, you are rejected. Everything about the cross was meant to totally and utterly humiliate him. And so he stands in front of the whole world completely naked as the world looked back at him with disgust. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then brilliantly, 
absolutely brilliantly, Jesus uses this utter humiliation to create a way for us to receive joy. It's amazing. Because it wasn't, because it was through embracing this that Jesus didn't belong to his circumstances, he belongs to God. God was the keeper of his joy and the giver of his joy. And as Jesus has everything stripped from him, just like Joseph, upon making that decision not to divorce Mary and to join her at the, the angel's beckoning, everything is stripped away from him. And God waits on the other side and says, now you can know full joy. When everything else seems like it's lost, come to me and you will know joy. After Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, said to Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. God reveals a way through when we let go of how much we belong to others and we realize how much we belong to God. My hope for you today is that you would come to a new revelation of this, that you belong to God. God loves you so deeply and so unfathomably. That just being you before God is enough. It shouldn't be. But because of Jesus, it is. Because you will never be enough to anybody else, to everybody else's expectations and the cultural way we should do everything. You will never be enough and you will steal joy. But in God, you will be enough and you will receive joy. So I want to pray for you this morning. Lord, we, we sit in the tension of knowing how difficult this is of how powerful the draw is to please others, to live a perfect life, to be good parents or good grandparents, to be a good neighbor, to be all these things that you, you never ask of us. You simply say, come, you're enough. Lord, I pray you might welcome right now every person here. that by the power of your spirit you would reassure them that they are, they are enough when they have laid everything down. Every secret, every mask, every pretense. Lord, shine your light on us this morning. Because your light as you broke into this world, your light is what brings us joy. And that joy can sustain us through anything. Lord, we thank you for the death you took, our death on that cross. You accepted it so eagerly for us that we might know you and have joy. And so may that joy be complete in us, we pray. We ask this in your glorious and magnificent name.